Well, you can't say it enough times. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas 2.0. Yeah. Well, you know, um, as I was, you know, getting ready for this Sunday and thinking about what in the world I was going to say, you know, I have to do that at some point. And, uh, you know, I thought, well, Psalm 42 and 43 really aren't quite as an appropriate Christmas text as I was hoping that they would be. But then I stepped back and sort of thought about it for a while and realized that Psalm 42 and 43 might just be the most perfect Christmas text for this year that I could think of. Now, I'm probably going to be able to uh, say something slightly more Christmassy on this uh, evening service on Thursday. Now we're having the Christmas uh, evening or Christmas Eve uh, uh, ceremony or, or service, a special service. But I want you to join me in turning to the 42nd and 43rd Psalms. I think you'll find some of my observations to be very, very interesting. Psalm 42 and Psalm number 43. What we're going to do is just for the full weight of everything, I'm going to read both psalms together. And you can follow along quickly, and I'll try to read quickly, and we'll get through it as soon as we can. How about that? Let's read both Psalm 42 and 43 in their entirety without stopping in the middle. The Bible says, Of the sons of Korah, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall praise him again. My salvation and my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and from Hermon and from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love and at night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of my 
my enemy. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy. I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. We're going to treat Psalm 42 and 43 as one flowing unit because they, see, they both of them share similar themes. Notice the repeated phrase in Psalm 42 in verse 5 and Psalm 43 in verse 5. Fascinatingly enough, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? And notice Psalm 43 and verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Notice the connecting phrases between the two. Another thing also to make mention of, we're going to treat the Psalms as one unit because Psalm 43 has no introductory uh, title or no preface giving us any sort of uh, historical background or any authorship of the Psalm, which also suggest that Psalm 42 and 43 to be taken as one unit. Also, another thing to take notice of in some of the earliest Hebrew manuscripts that we have, Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 are in fact one psalm. So we're going to treat them as one unit this morning. And I want you to notice something. Oh, my soul. Oh, my soul. When was the last time you said, oh, my soul? I want you to notice several themes that recur all throughout this psalm. He says in verse 5 and 5 of 42 and 43, he says, My soul is cast down within me. In verse number 6 of Psalm 42, he said, My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you in the land of Jordan and of Hermon and from Mount Mizar. This is important. Because I'm going to make the suggestion to you this Lord's Day morning that Psalms 42 and 43 share an incredible theme together. And if you're thinking, well, it's a theme of praise, that's true. They both uh, have themes of praise. If you're thinking that it's a theme of hope, yes, that's true. Psalm 43 and 42 both share themes of hope. But the great theme that unites these psalms is in the phrase, my soul is downcast. My soul is downcast. Psalm 42 and 43 open up the second book of the Psalter. And both of these are about depression and dark emotions and anxieties. If you have ever found yourself downcast and downtrodden, you can turn to Psalm 42 and 43 and ask the same question the psalmist did when they said, Why are you downcast, O my soul? I want to ask you a question this morning. I want you to be thinking in these terms. What does it suggest to us and to you that God chooses to open up the second book of Psalms, the second longest book in the book of Psalms? Remember, the book of Psalms is divided up into five separate books. And uh, book number one comprises Psalms 1 through 41. And book number two comprises Psalms 42 through 72. And here you have the second book in the book of Psalms. And the great theme of these books is that of depression. 
Now, I don't know about you, but if I was writing the Psalms and I was arranging the various books of the Psalms, I probably would not open up the second book of the Psalter with a theme of depression. But see, I'm not God. <laughs> and God is far more infinitely wismatic and wisdom, filled with wisdom than I am. It's important for us to understand why God does this. And for us to ask the question, what's the significance that the second book of the Psalms opens up with two incredible Psalms, both of which share themes of depressive feelings and emotions? I believe there are at least two important reasons why God does this. Number one, depression is a common experience for God's people throughout every age and dispensation. Doesn't matter if you're in the Old Testament, it doesn't matter if you're in the New Testament, it doesn't matter if you're in the Pentateuch, the historical books, or the poetical books, it doesn't matter if you're in the Gospels or the book of Acts or the church epistles, God's people experience low ebbs. They experience feelings of being downcast and downtrodden. Secondly, I believe God wants to help remedy our depressive thoughts, feelings, and emotions through books like the book of Psalms, and specifically Psalm 42 and 43. Let us come, therefore, this Lord's Day morning to these great Psalms so that we may answer the question of our soul in Psalm 42 and verse 5, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you downcast, O my soul? Let us answer the question, why are you downcast, in Psalm 42 and verse 5, with the wonderful words of Psalm 42 and verse 11, and Psalm 43 and verse 5, put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. If you've ever been depressed and discouraged in your life, then these psalms are for you. Let us come to understand some of the causes of these dark emotions that we may rejoice in the cure that is presented to us. I have one, two, three points this morning. They're in the form of questions. The first question I have is, who are these sons of Korah? Roman numeral number one, who are these sons of Korah? Roman numeral number two, what are the causes of spiritual depression? Roman numeral number three, how shall we be cured? How shall we be cured? Number one, who are the sons of Korah? Number two, what are the causes of spiritual depression? Number three, what or how shall we be cured? The Korahites were Levites. They were descended through Kohath, Korah's father, 1 Chronicles chapter 6, 22-48. And this was a family of musicians, special musicians employed to make music in the temple and tabernacle of Israel. You remember Korah, K-O-R-A-H, led a rebellion against the man of God, Moses, and because of the rebellion that Korah led in Numbers chapter 16, 
God said that he was going to open the ground up and swallow up Korah and the rebels. I believe there was 250 of them in total. And the Bible said that God, as a judgment against Korah and these mutineers who rebelled against Moses and God, God opened the ground up and he swallowed them, gulped them up down into Sheol. Now, this is an important thing because now you have, at the very beginning of Psalm 42, notice he said, to the choir master of Maskil of the sons of Korah. These are the authors, the sons of Korah, these special musicians. And what in the world do the children of a rebel and a mutineer like Korah have anything to do with writing songs of praise to our God? And in this question, we learn something about God. Numbers chapter 26 and verse 11, the Bible said that God chose to spare the sons of Korah. God chose to spare the children of the rebels. And it seems because God chose to exemplify grace and mercy to the children of Korah, that they grew up with a certain thankfulness, a certain gratitude in their hearts and in their lives for God not swallowing, swallowing them up into shale like he did their parents. And this is important because it was the mercy and grace of God, the gratitude and thankfulness of the sons of Korah which caused them to be very special musicians performing in both the wilderness tabernacle and in the temple. There are at least three preliminary applications that I have regarding the authorship of Psalms 42 and Psalms 43 to the quote-unquote sons of Korah. Number one, nothing can cause depressive feelings and emotions in our lives more than coming from a rebellious family. Why don't you stop and think about this? Maybe you've known someone that had a mother or father that was sinful, that did not follow God, that did not love God, that did not honor God. They weren't interested in the things of church. They weren't interested in the Bible. They weren't interested in a life of prayer. Nothing causes young people to be predisposed to dark feelings and depressive emotions like having rebellious parents. I want you to think about that. And here you have these young people, these sons of Korah, these very gifted musicians in the office of the tent, the work of the temple and the tabernacle, now writing songs of praise for the people of Israel under the old covenant. And this tells us something about God. And it tells us something about the work of God and the ministry of God here on planet Earth. It tells us that just because someone comes from a reprobate family, that doesn't mean that they have to follow in the footsteps of their sinful parents. And just because someone has parents that do not honor God, that doesn't mean that the children will do the same. Thirdly, some of the most God-fearing children and God-fearing parents have sinful children and sinful parents. So not only is this an encouragement for sinful children, it's also an encouragement for parents that have sinful children. Just because our parents or just because our children do not honor, worship, and serve God, that doesn't mean that that's what you have to do. Nothing can keep you from God's service. Nothing can keep you from the redemptive purposes of God if you have a heart that loves Him. 
That's encouraging news. And I believe that's one of the reasons why God chooses the sons of Korah to write such a special grouping of psalms. There are several of the psalms in this second book that bear the title from or by the sons of Korah. Some of the most wonderful works that have been done by God's saints have been done by parents who had sinful children or children who had sinful parents. Just because you come from a reprobating, rebellious family, that doesn't mean that that's what your lot in life has to be. If you will come to God and you will dedicate your life to God and you will cry out to God for his mercy and grace, God will hear you, God will restore you, God will use you. But it does say something, doesn't it, about the nature of human families. Human families by nature are broken. Human families by their very nature are filled with sinners and sinfulness. And very often when we come from a family of sinners, and all of us do, to some degree or another, some more than others, some less than others, when we come from a family filled with Adam and Eve's, we can expect that all of us have a predisposition to dark and depressive feelings and emotions. Now, what are the causes of this spiritual depression? I strongly encourage you to read a book by Dr. Martin, Martin Lloyd-Jones, was a great pastor of yesteryear, pastored, I believe it was the Westminster Chapel for a number of years there in London, England, a very gifted speaker, a very gifted man of God, and one of my favorite preachers, if I can say that. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones has a book called Spiritual Depression, probably one of the best books written from a pastoral perspective on this subject. But in Psalm 42 and 43, there are at least seven causes of depressive emotions. I want you to notice verse 6. Psalm 42, verse 6. He said, My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. What does this mean? What's this geographical location and the significance? This is a very specific place. Well, Mount Hermon was the northernmost mountain range that was the border between the nation of Israel and on the other side of this Hermon mountain range, on the other side of Bashan in the Old Testament, Bashan, uh, we have the city of Damascus. And Damascus represented all that the Jews stood against. Damascus represented idolatry. Damascus represented the enemies of God. And uh, during the second temple Jewish period, the period that the New Testament was written in, the Jewish people referred to this mountain range as the gates of hell. Now this is not a very encouraging thing and probably not a place that you would want to go on vacation. Nobody ever says, well, we're going, Dad, for vacation this year. Florida? Going to South, you know, South Carolina, perhaps? No, we're going to the gates of hell. Oh, that's not a very appealing place. And this was not a place where Jewish people wanted to go, and yet that is exactly the occasion. That's the location that the psalmist identifies. And this leads us to think something, to uh, infer something about this text. And it was probably that at some point 
During one of the captivities, this psalm was written by a Jew who was made a slave either by the Assyrians or by the Babylonians as both of those cities lay beyond this northernmost mountain range. And as the psalmist is watching the mountain range that is familiar to him and is not necessarily provoking good thoughts, remember the gates of hell is where this mountain range is referred to very often in ancient literature for the Jewish people. He's reminded of something. He's being taken and stripped out of his homeland. He's being laid captive. He's made a slave. And he's being dragged into another nation that does not honor, worship, and serve God. And he's looking back over his shoulder. And he's looking past the gates of hell. And he remembers the greater mountain range, the holy mountain, Mount Zion of God. And this was the place where he, the psalmist, exercised his gifts, talents, and abilities for the glory of the Lord. I call this first point homesick depression. Homesick depression. The psalmist is writing from a geographical location that was not a fun place. It was not a place of joy. It was not a place of good and uh, godly memories. He's either traveling or he's being held captive or both. And he's being dragged into a foreign land. The psalmist is far from home and consequently he or she feels far from God. Nothing can cause depressive emotions and feelings more than feeling alienated from God. Being away from our home. Homesickness is often associated with depressive thoughts and emotions. The temple and the tabernacle in Israel represented the presence of God on the earth. And the psalmist being yanked and stripped away from that place, it represented feelings of isolation, of alienation. That precious, that precious place that the psalmist knows to be the presence of God, being ripped away from that is causing darkness in their life. What does this mean? How does this apply to us? Very often when we feel as if we are separated from God and from the people of God, it produces feelings of homesickness in us. Uh, my wife and I, this past Friday, had made meals for a bunch of our shut-in people. If you didn't get one, please don't be upset. But it's mostly people that aren't able to be here with us this morning. And every single visit that we made, almost every one of them, the older folks of our church said, you know, this is the first Christmas in our memory that we can remember that we weren't able to be with our family. These people are hurting. The saints of God amongst our church because of the pandemic because of the media, because of all the hoopla going on. People don't feel uh, the ability or the liberty to meet together as they once did. The joy of the season is not prevalent like it once was. They look back over their shoulder at the many Christmases that have passed, and there's feelings of heartbreak, there's feelings of homesickness. Nothing can cause us to enter in dark feelings and depressive emotions like feelings of homesickness. Secondly, it's a dead-end kind of depression. 
The sons of Korah were special musicians whose sole purpose in life was to play music in the temple in Jerusalem. Now they're not able to do that anymore. Being separated from the temple and the sacrificial system would have meant that their talents and abilities were not being utilized properly. Nothing has the potential to send us spiraling down a downward staircase more than feeling as if our lives do not matter. If Michael Jordan's not able to play basketball, he's probably not a happy camper. If there's something in your life, like the sons and daughters of Korah, who are gifted in musician and music, but they're not able to play and honor God and bless the ears and hearts of others during the festivals and holy days of Israel, it produces a dead-end kind of depression. What does this mean? Perhaps someone has recently lost a job, or you find yourself stuck at a quote-unquote dead-end job where it feels like there's no place to move up. Perhaps someone has been forced into an early retirement or simply they are aging and becoming older in their life and they're not able to do the things that they once were. This can cause dark feelings and depressive emotions just like the psalmist. Thirdly, it's a taunted kind of depression. Notice the words in Psalm 42 and verse 3. He said, my tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Notice also verse number 10, same thing. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Twice over in Psalm 42, you have this phrase, where is your God? It's bad enough that the psalmist is moving past the mountain range known as the gates of hell. He's far away from home. Looking back over his shoulder at the temple, at the tabernacle, not able to exercise his gifts, feeling like where he's headed is a dead end. But now he has those around him who are taunting him, saying, where is your God? We live in a culture every moment of every day that get, tries to get us to doubt the presence of God in our lives. The age of modernism, postmodernism, rationalism, liberalism, secularism has destroyed the fabric of American culture, Judeo Christian culture, as some may call it. Nothing can cause us to enter in the pits of despair. I like what one author entitled her best selling book. She said, If life is a bowl of cherries, then why am I in the pits? And that's true, isn't it? And very often, and this is the way that we feel. We live in a world that taunts our faith over and over again. Many different ways, many different places and voices taunt our faith. Why doesn't God hear my cries is what the psalmist ultimately asks where is God in my circumstances right now is what he's crying out. And not only that, there are those around him that are causing him to make that cry and that plea. You find yourself in the pits of despair when the world is taunting you for your faith, seeking to get you to doubt the goodness and the presence of God in your life. Notice Psalm 42 and verse 4. 
These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and song of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Would you agree that when the psalmist says in verse 1, he said, these things I remember, and he talks about, he calls to remembrance, he memorializes how he would lead the people of God with song and praise into the temple for holy days and holidays and worship. Would you say that the psalmist is stuck in the past? I would. Nothing can cause us to be depressed more when we have a stuck in the past kind of depression. When we look back over our shoulder and think of the good old days. Things used to be a lot better around here. I could remember when there were more people. I could remember when everyone was more enthusiastic to serve God. I remember when everyone got along a little bit better. And stuck in the past kind of depression, the psalmist recalls precious memories and moments when he or she was leading the people of God in song and praise and procession into the temple. And things were going good. It was up and up. Usually when the psalmist calls to remembrance, he recalls to remembrance God's saving and delivering acts of the past, and it's a positive thing. But here the memory of the psalmist works against them. He's stuck in the past. He can't get over what's happening to him now. He's looking back over his shoulder saying, boy, I wish things were like they were. Things ain't like they used to be around here. Perhaps your sweetest memories of worshiping the Lord were during special holiday seasons or times of refreshing when the Lord's presence was especially real. I've known many people in my life that had become, get saved, become Christians, get on fire for God, devouring books, devouring scripture, listening to preaching. And for whatever reason, the trials of this life <clears throat> come their way. And they're not as devoted as they once were. And they're constantly looking back to those precious moments and those precious memories and times in the past whenever God was more real to them. And it keeps them down in the dumps. They continue to sing the blues because of being stuck in the past. Our older, our elderly people right now are probably experiencing a stuck-in-the-past kind of depressive emotion. Things aren't like they used to be during Christmas. The family's not around the table like they once were. We aren't able to meet and love each other like we once were. May God help us. Look at verse 7. Deep calls unto deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. It's a deluged kind of depression. It's a deluged depression. It's like waves one after another. It's trials like mighty waves and tide. Like a rising tide and a waterfall that beats down. Drowning, flooding. When we experience trials and tribulations one after another in quick succession. It's one thing to have a trial or tribulation, but it's another thing to have many of them come one right after another relentlessly like waves that crash against you seeking to drown you underneath their weight. We have a saying in our culture, when it rains it pours. 
And when our tribulations and troubles come in quick succession, one after another, after another, after another, we feel as if we are drowning in a sea of sorrow and in the deluge of depression. Number next, it's an impatient kind of depression. Look at verse number 9. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? He asked why. He asked to be delivered and God doesn't show up. He asked for a miracle but none comes. It seems as if God does not hear him. This is a common question that the Psalms ask. It's a question that Ruth and Naomi ask, isn't it? It's a question that the psalmist asked in Psalm 22 and verse 1. It's a question that the Lord Jesus Christ asked as he hangs upon the cross. My God, my God, why? Perhaps the darkest feelings a believer can experience this side of eternity is feelings of abandonment by God. Often it's our impatience to wait on God and His saving grace which causes us to be downcast and depressed. Impatience is a cause of depressive emotions, dark feelings, and anxious thoughts. Notice with me the last phrase, <clears throat> excuse me, in 42 and verse 9, he said, Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? Then notice with me, verse 1, Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man. And look at the, look at the ending of verse 2 in 43. He said, Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? It's an oppression kind of depression. It's a persecuted kind of depression. It's not just that our enemies taunt us. It's that they hate us for our faith. The world hates the faith of Christ. Jesus himself said in John 15, 19 through 20, he said, you do not belong to this world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. I've known people that have lost their jobs because of their faith in Christ. I've known people that have been kept from promotions in their jobs because of their faith in Christ. I've known people that have had relationships that were ruined because of their faith in Christ. Marriages have dissolved because you have a believer and unbeliever living in the, under the same roof. You have children that forsake their parents because of faith in Christ. You have parents that forsake their children because of faith in Christ. It is unusual for a person who will not be occasionally depressed by malicious and hurtful treatment of others by others. Now, here's the encouraging part. How shall we be cured? How shall we be cured? Number one, beware of false cures. Lots of false cures for depressive feelings and emotions in our day. Be aware that you cannot escape your depressive feelings by running from your problems. You certainly cannot dis escape depressive feelings by just getting a divorce. Excessive entertainment or frequent vacations, no matter how much that sounds appealing, none of that can stop and stymie depressive feelings or emotions. Popping pills can't stop depressive feelings or emotions. Abusing alcohol and drugs cannot stop oppressive feelings and emotions. 
These are false cures. At best, they're temporary. So what is it? What is the cure? Is God only going to diagnose the disease? Or shall he write us a prescription and treat the disease itself? This is what I have. I want to show you this. This is very precious. I didn't make this up. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones is far more intelligent than I am. But notice in verse 5, both fifth verses state the problem and they state the cure. Look, he said, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Verse 5 of 43, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Instead of letting our emotions, feelings, and circumstances speak against us, The psalmist said, we must speak God's word against our feelings, emotions, and circumstances. In other words, are you a preacher? Preach to yourself. That's what the psalmist does. He says, why, soul, are you feeling the way that you feel? And then he doubles back and starts declaring into his own life, into his own heart, into his own face... He holds the mirror up and he starts preaching to himself. I want to quote you, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, quote, You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, Why art thou cast down? What business have you to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, Hope thou in God, instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. Isn't that wonderful? It's the end of Dr. Jones's quote, and it's the truth, isn't it? Instead of letting our circumstances, feelings, and emotions speak against us, turn back and speak against your thoughts, your emotions, and your dark circumstances. You have got to become a preacher. Some of the best sermons I've ever preached weren't in church, they were to myself. Well, amen. Yeah. You have to tell yourself what the truth is and that you're not a slave to your thoughts, feelings, and emotions. You have to bring those dark thoughts underneath the authority of Scripture. Don't let your circumstances speak to you. Preach to your circumstances with the Word of God. This is the first step in climbing and God lifting you out of the pit. Nextly, Challenging yourself is a cure. Taking control is a cure. Number one, challenging yourself is a cure. Number next, connected with the previous point, we must address ourselves with our great redemptive hope. You may be going through a dark moment, but that is not the final scene in your life's epic. It's only a passing moment. The good times should far outweigh the bad times. The times of faith and hope should far outweigh the times of doubt and drear. 
We must put our hope in God. We must preach to ourselves. We must tell ourselves that we're not living for this present evil world. We live in a hopeless world, which is sinful and fallen. Therefore, it provides no hope at us for us at all. Don't look for your hope in the world. Don't look for your hope in yourself. Look up. He said, why am I cast down? But then what's he do? He turns around and he looks up. And this is the great cure a great cure is challenging yourself to believe in God's word. You are not a victim of your circumstances. You are not a victim of your own emotions and dark thoughts. Preach, brother, sister. Tell yourself the truth. Bring yourself underneath God's authority and God's word. Notice Psalm 42 and verse 8. By the day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. <clears throat> you have taking control as a cure, <clears throat> challenging yourself as a cure. A great certainty is also a cure. What is our great certainty? Well, in this passage, it's the hesed of God, the steadfast love. Did you know God is committed to you if you belong to him? He is committed to you like the most faithful husband is committed to his wife. He is committed to you like the most faithful wife is committed to her husband. He's not running out. He's not leaving you high and dry. He's not pulling the rug out from underneath you. And God certainly is not pulling the wool over your eyes. God is committed to you in steadfast love. God always behaves toward his children according to his steadfast or has said love. God, if God has led you in a great victory in your past, what makes you think that God will not also lead you into a victory now? If God was able to, leave, to lead Moses and Joshua and David, and David who had a lot more problems in his life than probably all of us put together, well, maybe not, but hey, David has certainly had more problems than most of you folks. I know you. And God led him faithfully, didn't he? What makes you think God won't do that for you? Now, I want to show you something, my favorite part, right along with all the rest of it. I have to be somewhat novel. So, in Psalm 42... <clears throat> The, tra the trajectory of the psalmist is away from the temple of God. Okay? But what I want you to see is what happens in Psalm number 43. Notice with me. Oh, I just can't. Well, I'm so excited. This is wonderful. So he's moving away from the temple and from the presence of God in Psalm 42. But look what happens in Psalm 43. Beginning in <clears throat> verse number three, he said, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to where? Your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar to God. Psalm 42, the trajectory of the psalmist is that he has, been, he has been brought out of Israel, away from the temple, away from the music, away from the praise, away from Mount Zion, 
away from all that represented the presence and the power and the grace of God in the Old Testament. He's moving away from that, but, and that's in Psalm 42. But what happens in Psalm 43? He envisions himself moving back toward God. All the way, he said first, he said the holy hill, which is the spot where the temple was, where the temple rested. Then he actually mentions the temple itself. Then he mentions the altar, which is inside the temple complex. And then he mentions to God himself. Reversing the course is a cure for the spiritual depression. See, they may have had him in chains and cuffs, leading him into a foreign land, enslaved, captive, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, whoever it was. But they could not stop a heart of faith. And the psalmist envisions himself moving backwards, regaining the ground that he lost all the way into the manifest physical presence of God. All the ground that he lost with the eyes of faith, he sees and believes he regained that same ground. Isn't this wonderful? When you find yourself moving far away from God, just backpedal. With the eyes of faith and with the heart of faith, meditate and envision yourself walking the pilgrimage to the holy hill, up the hill, into the temple, past the altar of God with your sacrifice, being fully accepted before a loving Father, and into the very presence of God himself. How was the psalmist able to do all this? By faith. By faith. The psalmist may be physically held captive to the world, but that cannot stop a heart of believing faith. When we are down in the dumps and singing the blues while being held captive in this present evil world, these great psalms call us to envision our pilgrimage back into the very presence of our God. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you so much. How many people will join me this morning in praying for our elderly people that aren't able to be with us? They're looking back over their shoulder at times when Christmas seasons were far more joyous than this one has been. Lonely, many of them, and heartbroken and homesick. How many people say, Brother Sharp, we'll pray for our people in our church? Yep, God bless you. I will too. I got my hand raised. Yep. It's a tough time. But God is faithful, isn't he? How many people say, boy, I feel like I'm being held captive by this world. I'm passing the gates of hell, you know, Mount Hermon in the northern part of Israel. Damascus is on the other side. But I want to envision myself walking into the very presence of the Lord, worshiping and praising him for who he is. The speaker this morning has his hand raised for that. How about yourself? God bless you. God bless you. Lord, the world may seek to hold us captive, but that can't stop a heart of faith. God, I pray for our people and for our nation.